for today. Here's the original plan that I had. Uh, I was going to preach the very first sermon that was preached at the very first worship service of Redeemer back in 1998 when we were still a mission church and our first time at Texas Christian Academy. Um, I think at that time I maybe preached five times total in my life and most of them were in my homiletics class at seminary. Um, so here was the text of that first sermon, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The reason why I picked this passage is because it lays out very, very clearly what real Christianity is, and that's what we were going to start this church on. I had a, another friend, Irv Queel, up at PCPC, says, you need to start with the supremacy of Christ. Preach Colossians. Um, and so this text shows very clearly that all of Christianity, from beginning, receiving him, to walking, growing, ministering, continuing on, is centered around the gospel. So real Christianity is about Jesus and moving around and building our lives around him. So the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's about Jesus' performance, not our performance. It's about Jesus' work, not our work. It's about Jesus' righteousness, not our righteousness or our record. The gospel, as one famous man now in our denomination says, is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, the milk. It's the A through A through Zs of the Christian life. It's everything. It's what brings us in. It's what grows and nourishes Christians. It's what develops community. It's what empowers us. It's what sends us out to love and serve others and to be a part of mission. It's about what empowers good works and service to each other and to others. This is where uh, visions fall or stand on whether it's about Jesus. Churches fall or stand on whether they receive, just as they receive him, they walk in him. Okay? This also is what separates other world religions from Christianity and other philosophies of life in the past, present, and future. Christianity, real Christianity, is about God connecting with us, coming down to connect with us by the doing and dying of his son. Sheer grace. Other religions and philosophies of life are about us reaching up to connect to God or traveling within to connect to God. Our doing and dying, a self-salvation. Spurgeon, when he was asked by, he was being interviewed, he has a very, Spurgeon, anybody know who Spurgeon is? There we go. All right, Prince of Preachers, right? Preached to venues of 10,000 people without a microphone. I mean, what kind of voice does that? I got a taste of that in seminary one time when Chriswell came in to preach and he started preaching. I thought I was on a plains in 1800 in a tent. Boom! I mean, this voice, it was just phenomenal. So I imagine Spurgeon had that kind of a voice. Well, he was being interviewed in the local paper about his successful ministry that the world saw. And they asked him, what's your philosophy of ministry? He was looking for, he was shocked and stunned because he was looking for something cunning. He was looking for something cutting edge, something probably 
trying to put myself in his position, probably something that was manageable and marketable that he had the scoop on and could deliver in the paper to up and becomers, right? And this is what Spurgeon said. My philosophy of ministry is him. Lift him up. And he will draw all men to himself. That's it. So there's my first sermon. A decade ago. Um, Now a decade later, I want to welcome you to a passage that unveils Redeemer's new novel vision for the next 10 years. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine, that's just Roman soldier wine, stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that from beginning to end, you build your church. Personalities don't build a church. Uh, People don't build a church. Techniques don't build a church. Um... Advice doesn't build the church. Tips for Christian living don't build the church. You build the church. And you build it on the offensive. You build it at the gates of hell. You pound down the gates of hell. So we've been gathered because you build. And we ask that you would continue to build your church for the next decade to your glory and to many, 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 many of us and those yet to be gathered good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, John records three groupings of Jesus' final words. The first group is found in 26 to 27. This is when he sees his mother, right? And he says, when Jesus saw his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. And then he says to his disciple, the disciple that's with him, which was John, behold your mother. That's the first group. The second group we saw last week was in 28, and this is... Those words, I thirst. It is finished are the last words of Jesus on this earth, on the cross. Now, he has other last words, right? He has last words called the Great Commission when when he comes back. But on the cross, on this earth, these are the last words. It is finished. What do these words mean? And even more importantly, so what? What do they mean to your life right now? And what does it mean to this church for the next 10 years? And the answer is everything. Absolutely everything. While at my usual sermon prep hangout this past week, I got into a conversation with one of the workers there that were done with their shift and they were on their way home and she knows I'm a pastor and she said, so Jeff, how was your Easter Sunday? I mean, that's your big Sunday, right? That's when you work. 
Yep, I only work on Sundays. That's all I do. I told her and then asked her about hers. How was your Sunday? And she frowned and she got real sad and she said, I I was sick for all of it. And she said, I was really disappointed because I was so looking forward to going to my church for Easter, so looking forward to be around the community and the people that I love for Easter, and I couldn't. I couldn't get out of bed. Now, her sickness was not the flu or some temporary tough condition like that, you know, that hits you and then moves on. It is a, it is a mysterious, chronic condition that absolutely ravages her and debilitates her every so often for a couple of days and then just leaves. We've talked about it before, so she didn't have to fill me in on that. But in our conversation, she said this. She believes that God will heal her of this condition. But in the midst of it, she almost groaned, and she said, How long, O Lord, though? How long? And then she said something that all of us can relate to. She said, I've got to figure out how to have rest and hope amidst it. It is so hard to live with. Resting amidst unrest is very elusive. Driven lifestyles, sleepless nights, enslaving thought patterns, hidden anxiety, trying to control your life and your world and your relationships and your situations and circumstances. Right? Now, I witnessed testimony in the Hatton household of the five Hattons. I'm not counting Ty. He's too young and I wouldn't trust his testimony anyway. (laughs) It would be unanimous in their interpretation of the facts and unanimous in their verdict. Dad has a tough time resting. Dad doesn't do well with resting, they would say. Now what's my defense? Or what's their evidence? Let's start there. What's their evidence? What would they bring before the court of law? They'd say, he stands when he eats. My defense, I would say, (laughs) I only do that when we're not having sit-down family meals, so get off my case. Nancy would add another piece of evidence. She would say, he paces in the kitchen while I'm making dinner. Evidently, this really bugs her. (laughs) She's so sensitive. If there's anything of substance to this standing charge, I say it goes back to my Pop-Pop Hatton. He was an old football coach and wrestling coach from Pennsylvania. Before he went to be with the Lord, we had all of our families together. We had, I was married and we had our first child. Pete just got married to Kristen. We were at this really, really fancy restaurant. My mom and dad are there, my Nana and Pop-Pop there. And I mean, the meal hadn't been on the table for five minutes and he was done. So what does he just do naturally, normally, like it's what he always does. He stood up to leave. Like, I'm done. It's time to move on to the next thing. Right? I thought thought my Nana was going to faint. Then I thought she was going to clobber him. She said, Franny, you sit down right now. His name was Francis. <laughs> Tough guy like that with a name like Francis. I don't know how he did it, man. <laughs> All right. Um, so I say standing up is a genetic thing. Now, in seminary, we had the spiritual formation class. And in the spiritual formation class, we're called to kind of put together a spiritual map of our life and you put your highs and lows and you put it in. I wrote some themes in my life and now the instructor read it 
And he came up to me after class, and this is what he said. He says, I get what you said here. So 15 years ago, I said something that I am beginning to get a gospel grasp of on a whole new way. Here's what I wrote. I work to rest. Real rest is very elusive. And everyone in this room works really hard to try to get it. Now, I want you to look at what Jesus says here. When he says it is finished, watch what happens right after that. Are you there? Look at the text. He bowed his head. Now, if we were to fill out this translation in a very literal way, it would go like this. Are you ready? He laid his head down to rest. What? He laid his head down to rest. There are no categories for this. On one level, Jesus is dying physically. Probably one of the most excruciating piece by piece by piece deaths you could endure. You gradually, in crucifixion, will die by exhaustion and asphyxiation. You won't be able, in the end, to hold yourself up anymore. And you will suffocate in your own blood or your own body fluids or not able to get your own air. But you've already been broken down piece by piece by piece before you even get to that point. So on one level, there's this incredible physical death taking place, but on a far deeper level, it's a cosmic death. It's an eternal death. It's an infinite death by God's own hand of justice. And amidst it all, Jesus bows his head to rest. I don't know about you, but what kind of death is that? What kind of person is this? So Jesus' cries, it is finished, is not a cry of relief. Oh, it's over. My pain is over. It's done. That's not a cry of relief. It's also not a cry of anguish or despair like, ah, all is lost. I've lost. My life is over. It is finished is a cry of victory. It's the cry of a champion who wins. The work is done. It is finished. The cosmic task is completed. It is finished. The mission is accomplished. It is finished. So he lays his head down to rest. Keller links Jesus' cry as it is finished way back to Genesis at the beginning of all things. He puts it this way. At the end of God's great act of creation, the Lord said it is finished and he could rest. Remember when God took his place on the seventh day, he rested that royal rest. Remember that? Those of you that are familiar with Genesis. Well, he continues on the cross at the end of his great act. So on the day of creation, he rested. 
on the cross at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said, it is finished and we can rest. So there it is. We can rest. So the work is done by Jesus. We can rest. The mission is accomplished by Jesus. We can rest. The cosmic task is completed by Jesus. We can rest. Now, what's this, what's this cosmic task? What's this mission, this work that he did? The answer is the work of redemption. The answer is the work of salvation. There are many, many biblical words that describe this work. It kind of goes, some of the words are like this. Propitiation, you ever heard of that one? Justification, reconciliation, definitive sanctification, atonement, substitutionary sacrifice. All these words describe a finished work. It is finished. But what they do is they give you a different sliver of splendor, a different wonder of glory and grace that every look and every cut shines more life and more light into your soul and into this world. Jesus died the death we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived so you can rest. So Jesus' last words on the cross are deeply personal to you. I want you to take them into your soul. I want you to breathe them in like they're the actual air you breathe. It is finished. You can rest. Now, personal experience across the board doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a mystic, or a moralist, or a pleasure seeker. We know across the board, personal experience says this is more easy This is easier said or philosophized about than done. Real rest is very, very elusive. What's the reason? What's the reason for this? Here's the reason for this. I put it in my words. We all work to rest rather than rely on the finished work of Jesus to rest. That's our problem. We work to rest instead of rely on the finished work of Jesus to rest. That's our problem. Now, we work to rest when we drive and push ourselves in our careers. Or we drive and push ourselves as a mom. Or we drive and push ourselves as an athlete. Or we drive and push ourselves in our artistic abilities, our music abilities, in our professions, in all the spheres of our gifting, our talents, our life, our callings. When we are driven and push ourselves, we are working to rest. And the reason why is because we think, we believe, That achievement and success and recognition and accomplishment and perfection will give us the rest we need, will give us the rest we long for, right? And what happens is, is that this personal unrest ends up unraveling our marriages. It ruins our relationships with our kids. It tears down our health. Because it is finished, here's the catch. Because it is finished, you are called to work. You are not called to work to rest. You are called to work out of rest. We are called to be controlled not by our careers and those other things, but controlled by rest. 
Another word for controlled would be intoxicated by. Another word for controlled would be ruled and dominated by. Another word for control would be so soaked and saturated with it that you're not soaked and saturated with your career. You're soaked and saturated with real rest. And when that happens, a career is just a career. Success is just success. Your gifts are just gifts. Work is just work. It's not the source of your rest. When we work out of rest, we have wisdom and power in our relationships and in our living and in our engagement with life. There's another angle to this. I think I wrote it down. Yes, there's another powerful angle to work to rest. It means this. It is finished. It's said over the Christian. So that means it's another word for saying justification. So a Christian is not only justified. Get this. A Christian's works are justified. So a Christian, when he goes about being a good husband and a father, and when he does serving, leading, whatever acts go into that, his works are justified. So in a mother, when she takes care of her kids and nobody knows and takes care of sick kids and all that goes in with kids and doesn't get to do the things that might be able to do when you have more freedom, when you do that kind of self-sacrificial work, when you do that work, a Christian mother's works are justified. A Christian coach's coaching is justified. A Christian professor's professoring is justified. A doctor's doctoring is justified. A plumber's plumbing is justified. You get the picture? You know what this means? You are free and bold and confident to work without having to look over your shoulder at all your mixed motives. To not have to run around checking your spiritual pulse. Did I do that one out of love or was that for vainglory? You know what the answer is? both (laughs) so you are free because your works are justified to get in the game and get to work boldly joyfully confidently not self-preoccupied you get your eyes on your work and you get your eyes on other people's good to the glory of God you get your eyes off yourself you forget yourself It is finished means everything for us. All right. There's another way that we work to rest, and that is we make others work to rest. This is going to get a little painful. If you thought the first one was painful, you might want to leave now. Uh, We do this. We make others work to rest when we hold grudges, we don't forgive, we store up anger, we come bitter, we refuse friendship, and to work things out with people. Why? In other words, we make others pay. We make others work. We make others earn their rest with us. Parenting is notorious for this. You know, all of a sudden, we're personally offended when our kids disobey us. Why are you personally offended? They're not your kids. You're not called to be offended. You're called to love them, just like Jesus loves you, offended, offensive person. 
marriages are dying because of this. Payback, payback, payback. Deny payback. Churches are missing grace because of this. This kind of relational unrest hardens us. It dehumanizes us. It makes us less human. What it does is it reaches in and it takes the embers of love out of our heart. And it reaches in and guts the very gospel we say we believe in, which the heart of the gospel is about reconciling enemies. Not reconciling friends, enemies. And that's ripped out. This kind of relational unrest also does something that's very important, and this is where it's very important and insightful for us when we're in these situations. And who isn't in these situations? I'd like to know who you are. Um, it reveals our deeper unrest with God. Because the way we are interacting and treating people is we're just passing on how we relate to God. We work to rest with God, so we make people work to rest with us. Right? So the New Testament is very, very helpful, especially Paul and Jesus and John and 1 John. They give this 100% effective way of helping us see our working to rest theology or what's called moralism and legalism in the Bible. 100% effective way. This is the way they talk about it. They say, look at your relational interactions rather than your theological affirmations. Look at your relational interactions rather than your theological affirmations. So in other words, we, these writers will say, Paul, Jesus, 1 John, he will say, listen, if you say you believe, right, we, we can believe in unconditional election and divine providence, and we can believe in God's sovereignty, we can believe in grace and total depravity, but our relational interactions reveal a belief in salvation by works. Does that make sense? Because it is finished, we're called to work hard at our relationships by grace. So we're called to work hard at loving each other. We're called to work hard at believing the best in each other. We're called to bear the weaknesses and the sins of each other. We're called to work things out with each other. We're called to serve and love each other. We're called to actually live with and honor the differences of each other. We're called to complement each other. We're called to encourage each other. We're called not to pick each other apart. We're called to be a community with each other, a redemptive, unshockable people with each other. We've got to work hard at relationships because it is finished. Now, how do we do this? And this is where we have to end. How do we break down our work to rest drive? You've got it in you. How do you break it down? How do you grow more and relying on the finished work of Jesus to rest? How does that happen? First thing is the old hymn says, we start by laying our deadly doing down. We got to lay our deadly doing down. Confession gets a bad rap these days. But true confession is enlivening and freeing. And it brings liberation and life on the spot. You don't have to roll around and beating yourself up. You don't have to roll around and beating anybody else up. When we begin immediately to confess on the spot, liberation, freedom. Confession is just simply telling God, yeah, I work to rest. And it's sin 
It's a way that I'm trying to secure my own rest. It's a way that I try to save myself. And if you got to talk to other people, because you make them work to rest, you go talk to them. After confession, we, sincere, we simply and sincerely ask Jesus to help us, teach us to rely on his finished work to rest. Because what we got to remember, and I think we of all people continually forget that faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of grace. So faith is not something you magically pull out of your heart like a magician pulls a rabbit out of his hat. You don't have faith inside of you. It's not there. Faith is a gift of grace. It's something Jesus gives. He's the author and finisher of faith, according to Hebrews. So, Jesus, help me. Help me rely. Teach me to rely. Give me the grace to rely, to trust your finished work, to find rest. And then finally... When you notice your drive to work to rest asserts itself in your life, because it will, oh, you won't be done with it till the day you die. So if you think, oh, once you do this, you're done with it, sorry, good night, I've got to break the bad news to you. Come on, take a seat. It's okay. You'll be okay. You will struggle with this for the rest of your life. So when you notice that it asserts itself like... You got to take sleeping pills to sleep. Like damaged relationships. Like painful emotions. Like standing when you eat. I want you to hear Jesus' final words on the cross specifically to where it's asserting itself. It is finished. You have my rest. And come alive. And re-enter life. And work hard. Amen.